man, that was probably the best episode of The Mandalorian I've ever seen. Wait a minute. Which show are we watching again? Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Nerd Explosion. I am your host, John Wintrobe. And starting this podcast, Sean couldn't be here for a Book of Boba Fett discussion, but he'll be back for our anime discussion later in this episode. But to talk about Book of Boba Fett, I have my friend Sam Gilligan with me. How are you doing today, Sam? Doing great, and I'm very glad to be here again, especially anytime there's Mandalorian lore to discuss. And we were fed so good with this episode. Of course, this was Chapter 5 of the Book of Boba Fett, but it didn't really feel like an episode of the Book of Boba Fett, because Boba Fett wasn't even in the episode, which I don't know about you, but I'm kind of conflicted on how feeling about that. But otherwise, the episode was fantastic. It, of course, opened with Din appearing in the butcher shop trying to collect a bounty, and we kind of see maybe a little bit of confliction with him trying to go back to being a bounty hunter after the journey he had with the first two seasons. I'm glad you picked up on that. He wants everything to be normal again. I'm glad you picked up on that too. It seemed like he was kind of disappointed to be back in the saddle, which was sort of a surprise, not a, not a turn that I expected, but certainly one that fits. And it was really great to see, like, like you mentioned, this butcher shop. I feel like they could have just thrown some Greeblies on any butcher shop, but it works really well. Absolutely. And, of course, the dog-type um, species. I don't remember what they're called. They were first they're, in Star Wars The Clone Wars. They were Clatoonians, and they were actually in Return of the Jedi. They were Klaatu, Barada, and Nikto, the Skiff Guards. Oh, right, right, right. Yes. I was, that, was a, that was a touch I actually really liked hearing. I Because I, I thought the whole time these pig dog people are really, really familiar. But it wasn't until Din later, spoiler, throws the head on the table goes, this Glatoonian man. And I said, oh, I know that species. Yeah, I most recognized them because there was a bounty hunter that was a Glatoonian in Clone Wars. I remember him. I don't remember. Yeah, his he name, was one of the him. ones that worked with Boba that got killed by Ura Singh for double crossing them in front of the pirates. So I'm watching. I'm watching the episode on mute, like skipping through it bits and pieces. I don't think I have had a more yes moment in in Star Wars in a long time than Din flicking that dark saber. Yeah, and oh. uh, it just, it looks so good. And I think one of the biggest things that people have been talking about is the weight it has for someone that isn't a Force user. And that was new to me. Yeah, for people that have only watched live action Star Wars, the Mandalorian is their first time seeing the Darksaber at all. So um, this is the first time I think that in live action we've really seen like how heavy a lightsaber is in people's hands that aren't like Force users, right? Oh, yeah. And the weight that the Darksaber has was first touched on in Star Wars Rebels because um, in, I think it was the third season of Rebels or, or earlier, I could be wrong, um, but I know that Sabine gets the Darksaber off of Darth Maul's ship. Um, the choreography, like he steals it away from him. The choreography for the Darksaber fight really makes you feel like this saber is a heavy thing. He's like lugging it around. Yeah, it, it feels like it's your regular knight sword. It feels, it, it oh, very yeah. much feels like Din went from being kind of, because like the spear is a very like Greek style weapon. Um, most yes. people associate spears with Achilles or Perseus. Um, 
so we went from being like this this mythological hero to being more of the of the knight type character which um are who the Mandalorians were initially based off of. Their armor and everything is very much based off of the knights from the Crusades. Yes, the T-Visor actually was uh, designed to be medieval in origin, which I love. Now that we have Din, uh, he's had the Beskar armor pretty much for two seasons now. This knight in shining armor look is not tiring for me at all. No, and they're definitely leaning into it more, right? Because he's becoming more honorable... Him accepting Paz's offer to fight later in the episode. Um, him knowing that he may not be worthy of the Darksaber, but it's still being, you know, he was he defeated Moff Gideon in battle, so it is his to wield, so it's his burden currently. He's become such a, such a chosen one, in a sense, through this, through this acquisition of the Darksaber now. Yeah, he's kind of realized that he now has this greater importance, even if he doesn't fully realize it yet. Like, you still have moments where he still, like, is bowing to the armor, despite technically him holding the Darksaber means that he has a more prominent role um, as a member of Mandalorian culture than she does now. So I'm glad you mentioned Moff Gideon. Is he just, like, super, super strong? Does he have like Popeye forearms to be wielding this dark saber? I think that or he, is it. I think that it's like. Um, I think it's like Grand Admiral Thrawn, um, where a lot of the officers in the Imperial military um, practiced swordsmanship as um, kind of a hobby. I know Thrawn okay. specifically was really good at hand-to-hand combat, so I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Gideon was like that too, and that's why he's able to control the dark saber so well. I totally called Paz turning. As soon as, soon as Din whipped that Darksaber out of his back pocket, and Paz is, he doesn't have a face or anything, so you can't really tell, but his eyes seem to linger on it, you know? He made yeah, you can like, see from the physical language that the character has how he's feeling in the moment. And we, is, as fans of Clone Wars, knew um, who his ancestors were already before this as well. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I knew he. I knew it was going to be like that too. Mm-hmm. It's also it's also good to show of all these uh, Mandalorian actors, or maybe I've just watched Star Wars long enough to be able to decipher an emotion without a face. Yeah, with a helmet, <laughs> it might Absolutely. just be me. But I could read every feeling. I could see all of this. I'm going to skip ahead to the battle, especially between the uh, the armorer and Din. It had such like their whole interaction, that whole scene, that just had such emotion for it. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Yoda teaching Luke in Empire Strikes Back. If Yoda Yoda was, like, not 90 years old, (laughs) this young Yoda could have kicked Luke's butt. Absolutely. I think it's funny. Din has a lot of really funny moments in this episode, too. Yeah, you can see that he's, like, clumsy. Yeah, he's always been very clumsy. Um, he's never, and I love the fact that he's not the perfect hero. It's the same reason why, like, I love, um, Daredevil in Marvel Comics, for example. It's always great getting this hero character that gets the crap beaten out of him and still continues to try the fight. That's noble is what it is. It's a hero, it's a, like, like, hero's goal. I think the Mandalorian has come a long way from... From season one, episode one, that cantina where he like zips the guy's leg and crunches him with the door and he's all cold and rough. He's come such a long way. Gone is this sort of like stoic, 
performance. Maybe again, maybe it's just me because we've seen him in two whole seasons now. But gone is this sort of like stoic lone ranger, and he's become sort of like I wouldn't say I wouldn't say naive or bumbling. But those are the only two words I can really come up with. He's, he seems he's become a like more lost. warm person. Oh yeah, oh, because yeah. of his attachment to Grogu, him losing um, the Children of the Watch, and then over the course of season two, trying to being forced to reevaluate what it means to be a Mandalorian through meeting Bo-Katan and meeting Boba Fett, his view on the world has completely changed. And oh, you can yeah. see that fully through the way that he acts and responds to the armor and Paz in this episode. I appreciated the little history lesson that the armorer gave him. Like, I knew this, but it was still good to hear it sort of, like, confirmed. And then seeing them build the forge and get back to it all, that was great. Did he make chainmail for Grogu? Yes. That's what I think it it is. Is it, it, like, a shirt? What is it? I guess we'll find out if we see Grogu again. (laughs) I guess we'll find out if we see Grogu again. Yeah, what did you think about seeing Mandalore in live action for the first time? Oh my god, don't get me started. That was shocking. For the first ever time we see Mandalore and it gets like carpet nuked. That yeah. was like upsetting. I had yeah, to You see the, the scene, capital actually. city itself get blown the smithereens. Like the city collapse. That spent, it was really hard. For those that have seen the Clone Wars, I've spent so much time there. So much time. And then it's just, I'm watching the scene again. It's still just tragic to see all of the, like, hundreds of TIE bombers and then just totally leveling this, this planet. I, seeing, seeing fantasy violence such as, like, the Death Star obliterate a planet, that's a little different. But the idea of carpet nuking isn't so alien to us. I suppose it is a galactic genocide. And then the K2 droids were a nice touch, too. Yes, that they're very true. Terminator-esque in the imagery. Oh, yeah. I suppose it is a galactic genocide, so whichever way you slice it or show it, it's going to be upsetting. But I don't know. I figured it would have been a little more spacey in in their ways. I was expecting to see a little more Imperial flair than a simple bombing run on Mandalore. Though well, you we have to consider fair, when they this would happened. Because have... it was probably when shortly was after the events of Revenge of the Sith. And the bombing of Mandalore happened in the first place because Mandalore rebelled against the Empire. So, when when the when the armor said that Bo Katan essentially led them to their Ruined. like their destruction, the Night of a Thousand Tears. Yes, the so is, Bo was given; she was handed right, the dark saber by Sabine. But when the trail, when the when the death by a thousand tears happened. I believe that she was acting as the de facto reader of Mandalore because of what all that would ha- had happened with Maul, with him being detained and then running off on his own. There wasn't really anyone holding the Darksaber on Mandalore to lead it, so she probably took over leadership without the Darksaber. So what is her leadership's sort of like timeline then in this case? Does she like go and come back and go and so come back? So Bo was the de facto leader of the Mandalorians for a long time. I think for like a decade at least. Because when she is introduced in Star Wars Rebels, she's still acting in that leadership role. Okay. Um, which is when, and that's why Sabine chose, chooses to give her the Darksaber in the first place. Because Sabine doesn't think that she is adequate to ruling and leading Mandalore. So she hands it to Bo. She doesn't, Bo doesn't win it 
in combat at all. Right. Which so is why the... um, she's proclaimed as a fake leader, both by Gideon in season two of The Mandalorian and by the Chosen of the Watch in this episode. So does the Night of a Thousand Tears happen prior, during, or after the events of Rebels? Before. Um, Before. When we're introduced to Mandalore in Rebels, there's two, there appears to be two separate factions. There's one that's in support of the Empire and one that's against them. Because you have, like, Gar Saxon, right, right, who was second in command of the Darth Maul, who's now an Imperial, an Imperial Super Commando, like in the original concept up for Yeah, Star with Wars. that shiny white armor. That was a yeah. great look. And you have him acting as the leader for, like, Concordia and all the, the systems under Mandalore that are in support of the Empire, either out of loyalty like Saxon is or out of fear like most of the rest of them are. Um, and then you have, like, Bo-Katan and, um, and, the, and House Wren, which is Sabine's family. So you have the cries, you have, like, um, House Cries and, and House Wren. And basically most of the people that were in Death Watch under Vizsla. Under Vizsla. That are in rebellion against the Empire. So do we know if the armor... Does the armor have a name? No. Does she have a clan? Um, so and I talked about this, I think, either last week or the week before this. The reason why the armor doesn't have a name is because she hasn't appeared in an episode written by someone that isn't John Favreau. That's a fair point. <laughs> Uh, because I joked about this a couple episodes ago, but now that like I'm really thinking about it um, with this episode and the fact that every character that's appeared in a Dave Filoni episode has a full name, like Fennec Shan, Fennec Shan, or Cobb, or uh, or characters that were introduced in books have full names, like Cobb Vanth first appeared in in Star Wars Aftermath. Right. Yeah. Any character that has only appeared in episodes written by John Favreau doesn't have a full name. Like, Dang. how long did it take for them to name Din or Grogu in The Mandalorian? Well, it took a whole season to name Din Jaren. Yeah. And it took a season and a half to get Grogu's name. Before that, in the script, he was just called The Child. The Child. So, oh, you Dito. Yeah, it's, it's a joke among a few of us that Jon Favreau is really bad at assigning things names. <laughs> I mean, when you have Star Wars to play with, I wouldn't really be afraid to name characters. There's a guy named Droopy McCool. Yeah. Just go just go nuts. Or the, or Sweeze Baggy and the, the Death oh, Stick Dealer. Yeah, the Death the Stick Dealer. The that guy is so funny. Or Jedi Shaggy. Like yeah, Shaggy. The, list, the list goes on and on. It's a shame that the armorer isn't named or has some kind of deeper story though, because she is very wise and cool in this episode. Yeah, Apart from that, the obvious, like, Yoda-esque moments of, like, yeah. teaching the combat or her wise wisdom of, like, uh, like trial without insight. It was yeah. really interesting to see her debate sort of, like, Mandalorian philosophy within. Well, that's the opposite of the Jedi core. That's the Mandalorian core. Yeah, very, that's, that's how the Chosen of the Watch are. That they're, I love that, that argument that Din has with her over the difference between the Jedi and the Mandalorians. And it's interesting that the children of, or Mandalorians in general still have the archaic view of Jedi that they're, they're, they're cutting themselves off from emotion because as we know, that always usually means the, is a, you know, a problem for the Jedi. The, oh, the yeah. cutting off of emotions causes, it's the root for almost all of the bad decisions that they made in the prequel trilogy, and it's also probably part of the reason why Luke's Jedi Order failed 
um, prior to the events of the sequel trilogy. Was Luke, uh, I thought he did away with the cutting off of emotions, but that was also back when he was married to a woman named Mara Jade, so I'm not entirely sure if that's canon still. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, there's, I think that how Luke was handling his new Jedi orders, he was trying to find a balance between the two, and obviously from what happened with Kylo, uh, he failed at it quite badly. <laughs> did Kylo kill Grogu? We don't know yet. Maybe. But that could happen. That's a scary maybe. thought. Hopefully not. <laughs> Real scary thought. I like to think that he took him and I'm put him on I'm willing to wager that Din um, takes Grogu away from the Jedi Order after a certain period of time in the story. Oh, yeah. That's why I'm hoping will happen. Because, like, in this episode, we mentioned it a bit, but it, throughout this whole episode, I knew that Grogu was going to be mentioned at least once or twice. I didn't expect... Um, the absence of Grogu that have such an effect on Din's character. Oh, yeah. You can this... see that he feels detached from the world around him throughout this episode. It's fantastic. No, he's having a hard time with his own identity at this point. Like, especially running into older characters like, um, what's the name of the woman on Tatooine who did the Jawa? What's her name? Pelly. Pelly. Like, when he meets her again, he, like, doesn't know what to talk about if it's not Grogu for a minute. He's like, uh, the Razor Crest. That's something. Yeah, absolutely. And but it, you, you can see that that kind of feeling with how the task he feels among the other Mandalorians as well. It's not just that his view on them is different now because of what he's learned. It's also that he no longer sees, he no longer feels that he's that his family is with the children of the Watch because he spent so much time away from them. It's interesting too to see. What was the point I just had in my head? Oh, this is what The Mandalorian I expected before Episode 1 ever even dropped. I Before Grogu was ever even uh, a concept I could have imagined. Like, I was fully expecting just a full-fledged space cowboy show. But now that I'm watching it without Grogu, it feels like it's missing something. Yeah, and that's exactly the feeling it's supposed to give you. Oh, Yeah. Because it, um, it, I think that adds you into his thought of he feels like he's missing something. Absolutely. I and do have I know to that say, one. Sorry, you go. <laughs> I do have to say the other time I, I just had to gasp and pause, just so shocked. Have you ever removed your helmet? No. Have you ever removed your helmet? Mm. And she has to repeat it as if she's like a school teacher. Yeah. Making, making, make, basically telling him, don't make me repeat this again. <laughs> the whole time Paz Vizla is like, He's not saying nothing. Hmm. I, and you can see in, in Paz's face, because this is after Din beat him in combat and showed mm -hmm. that he's more worthy of the Darksaber than Paz is. He's still holding this knife. I paused the frame right at the, uh, have you ever removed your helmet? He's still holding the knife to his throat, but he's like, he completely forgot that he's there. Yes. It's, and when you look at, at the way that Paz, Paz's physical body language is, I, I could be completely wrong in this, but I'm getting... A feeling of confliction from him over I, whether because the armor is saying that Din isn't a Mandalorian, but Din just beat Paz in combat. Exactly. Like it's one of the most honorable Mandalorian traditions. I think it's a sort of shame, maybe a guilt uh, deepened by that fact that he's not Mandalorian anymore. Because he would have felt shame or guilty anyway from losing, because that's embarrassing. They lost right in front of the right in front of the armorer, man. That's embarrassing. But and then finding out, he's just like, whoa. 
I, he lets him leave, which I was surprised they let him leave with the Darksaber. I was very surprised they let him leave with the Darksaber. I was fully expecting either him to surrender it or the armor to demand it. I was not expecting to see the Darksaber, like, leave I think him. the armor doesn't feel like it's her place to challenge him. Like, she, I don't think that she actually wants to be the leader of the Mandalorians as a whole. Oh, she no, wants no. to lead her, her small section of the group with the Children of the Watch, and she wants to rebuild it before maybe trying to contest Din over ownership of the Darksaber. So is, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back now on the conversation that Paz and Din had, is he worthy to hold the Darksaber? Because he didn't kill Gideon. Does that count as winning in combat per Mandalorian rules? You have to also, I mean, I believe so, because you also have to consider that Maul wasn't fully trying his hardest against um, Pre Vizsla in the Clone Wars either, because he didn't use the Force a single time until the fight was basically over. That was probably an honor thing. Like, Maul, Maul is by no means like a sleazy character. He's cunning, he's sly for sure, but he had, he had maybe, maybe I was overlooking it, some kind of respect for the Mandalorian warrior culture. Mm-hmm. Which I thought I thought was interesting. So he was a great sort of foil for Mandalore at the time, but this is now history for the Mandalorians. Like yes. Darth Maul is a shadow. I don't think most of them would know his name. Yeah, it's and I think there is a partial. Uh, I like, think still that his way. effects are felt. Like even yeah. in the, even in the armor's helmet. Yes, with the was, horns. Yeah. Yeah, I think Absolutely. I think that's that's sort of like a nod or some kind of holdover. Like I think there was an impact made by the mall, the mall, because it sort of sent Mandalore itself into chaos. Prior to that, Pre Vizsla held the dark saber, and Death Watch was the reigning. Like yeah, there was a queer leader, and when Maul took over Death Watch, that was the first time that there started to be a split in Mandalorian culture. For I think for the first time in a long time, a long time. Um, with him and Bo, and then that split, as I mentioned earlier, was carried on by Gar Saxon after Maul ran away. So, Din gets kicked out, and he has to go to the caves beneath Mandalore, right? Is that a yeah, thing that he's going to do? The mines, there we that go. That were seemingly, that could potentially have been destroyed by the bombing, so they might not even still be there. It's more, it's basically the armorer saying, this is what you have to do. If it's not there anymore, then there's no possibility. And of too bad. And too that's bad. that's like the moment that you kind of see the flaws with the Children of the Watch ideology. I mean, we always heard them from Bo's perspective in season two, but now we're yeah. really starting to see some of the errors with how strict the Children of the Watch are. That there is no room for error. There is no bending of the rules. There are oh, yeah. strict he guidelines. Took his helmet and off sometimes once. those guidelines uh, end at a certain point because of the destruction of Mandalore. It's it's a flaw in the system. And with They're holding only, on to ancient traditions. Yeah. And with there only being two of them left. And Bo touched on this in season two that um, Bo-Katan realized that the culture of Mandalorians needed the change after the destruction of Mandalore. And we're starting to see the flaws that Bo mentioned in front of us with the way that the armor talks down the den after revealing that he took off his helmet. 
That was so cool. I always wondered what would what would happen because it was such a big thing. I wondered if that was going to come back to bite him. I don't know why he told the truth though. I would have because lied. he's honorable. I, I mean, I suppose. Yeah, but... and I think it's also because again, Den's view of Mandalorians is different because he now realizes that there are other sects besides the Children of the Watch that have no issue on whether their helmet needs to always be on or not. I think there's so... a part of him that. Again, like, I think he doesn't want to say it to the armorer's face, but I'm pretty sure that he's thinking, your ideology is flawed, but I respect you enough not to tell that to you. Yeah, he's, he's exploring, he's meeting new people, and he's starting to realize that he may or may not have been in a cult for the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, it's, it's one of those Bummer. things, and it's that kind of closed-mindedness is something that all of the Mandalorians struggle with. Because why Bo saying that Boba isn't a Mandalorian, despite having his father's armor and his dad was a foundling. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that make him a Mandalorian? One would think. One would think. I'm so glad that the debate whether or not they're Mandalorians is over, at least. Mm-hmm. Mostly. Because I think that whereas it matters is whether it matters to Din. I think in Din's eyes currently, anyone that wears the armor that is a descendant or a foundling of Mandalore is Mandalorian. So he gets kicked out and then he goes immediately to the star tours like building. And I have loved seeing the star tours robots and everything. Yes. I don't know why they've been in book of Boba Fett so much, but I am loving it. I think it's so cute. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, the droids in this episode in general were all like really nice touches from different places of oh, the yeah. Star Wars um, canon. When we get to like um, Pelly's um, hangar again. In BD. Yeah, we see a BD unit. That <laughs> for was the first cool. Time it, outside of Jedi Fallen Order, which made me so excited. That was really cool. Between, between the K2, the R1, the Star Tours droid, and the BD, I was satisfied even if there was no mandalorians in this episode that was that was enough for me but this was amazing i'm watching this scene again so i am going to say there's a guy getting on the uh the transport with din jaren he's literally like shoulder to shoulder with din jaren and he's wearing a uh imperial range trooper outer layer coat he's not wearing any of the other armor he's just wearing the big coat from solo interesting uh, I noticed this to be true because the coat he's wearing has a huge uh, plastic sort of like dome shape on the back. And I said, I know exactly what that is. So he's not wearing any of the other armor, the big gauntlets, the big boots, the helmet or anything. He's just wearing the coat. I don't know if this was like intentional, if it's a fashion statement, or if it was just like someone in the costuming department thinking I wouldn't notice, but I did. It's good to notice, though. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of Easter eggs laid out. I mean, we've covered them in, in a few of the previous episodes. Um, but this episode in particular, I think a lot of that has to do with um, Bryce Dallas Howard being the daughter of Ron Howard, who is also a huge Star Wars fan because he directed Solo Star Wars Story. Um, I think a lot of the Easter eggs are her kind of expressing her fandom of Star Wars. Oh, yeah. And when... You saw the new ship. What did okay. you initially think it was going to be before it was revealed? Okay, so so 
second half of the episode, he, he finally gets to Mos Eisley and gets back to Pelly, his friend, as we were talking about her before. And yeah. she says, oh, I gave you a message about – or he says, I got your message. And she says, what message? And he says, you found a new Razor Crest. And she says, oh. Now, for those of you who haven't seen it, she uh, goes back, back into this little garage area, rips a dust cover off of it, an N1 Naboo Starfighter from The Phantom Menace. And I lost my mind. I, if it wasn't so late at night, I would have screamed. <laughs> I, uh, let's try spinning. That is a neat trick. And I done spun for hours. That was amazing to see. This was one of the first Lego sets I ever built as a kid. Okay? This is this a Lego is set like... that I want. I usually don't like it when Star Wars plays with my nostalgia, but I'm going to let it go here. <laughs> oh, yeah, because this feels less – all the Episode 1 callbacks of recently, especially in this episode with the, uh, with the Beggar's Canyon, this oh my feels God. less seeing like a nostalgia. The whole, yeah, seeing like him fly shoehorn. through the actual track from the pod voice in Phantom oh. Menace is just so – it's so good. And it felt so natural. Like, at no point was I ever like, oh, they're just trying to cash in on some Phantom Menace nostalgia. It felt like, oh, yeah, just going over to Beggar's Canyon, you know, the old, the old pod racing track, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, I totally know. I died there 150 times playing Lego Star Wars when I was eight. Yeah. And Beggar's Canyon has a lot of meaning because it's also where Luke learned how to pilot, as mentioned in the original Star Wars, because he that shot romp rats outside of Beggar's Canyon. That is true. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I'm probably mistaken, but if I'm not, it's also, I think, where the Tuscans that kidnapped Shmi Skywalker lived. I You're might probably be right, because it's pretty close to where the Lars homestead is. So he gets there. They unveil the N1 Naboo Starfighter. I gotta say, as much as I love the ship, the final product, that gorgeous silver, the, uh, the uh, like pokey bits the little removed astromech bit for grogu adorable the the engine looking like a hot rod oh that was so funny that was so <laughs> funny let me see if i can pull up a picture of this ship din jaren new ship but it is gorgeous i love that they kept the chrome with the sort of like subtle yellow accents from the razor crest it's in a new pattern sure but it looks great not a big fan of the exposed bits like on the on the turbines especially that might be fixed because they only just finished it, but I loved it. I loved it so much. Not at all the ship I was expecting. I'm not quite sure what I was expecting. We all assumed it would be just like another like bounty hunter gunship. Probably not look, something that looked exactly like the Razor Crest, but like a similar oh, no. S design. If I had, None if of I had us to were say, expecting a starfighter, let alone an no N1. No way. If I like, had to say that I was going to guess what kind of ship it would be, I would say, like, I think it was Embo's ship from the Clone Wars. That one that sort of looks like the Razor Crest. Yeah. I initially thought it was going to be similar to uh, General Grievous's ship or Cad Bane's oh, in the Clone Wars, too. That was actually my favorite. That's what I initially right. thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a Grievous ship because um, I saw the shape, the silhouette. And I had two of those as Lego sets, so I was like, oh, I know exactly what that is. Very yeah, the Xanadu Blood not. is the name of Cad Bane's ship from the Clone Wars. Xanadu Blood, that's cold. I had the, what is, what is Grievous's ship called? The I don't one, think I Grievous's had an actual name, but it's, it's the same type. It's a Porax 38 Starfighter. His, uh, his flagship was called the Invisible Hand, which I thought was a nice touch because he couldn't use the Force. Yes. So it's threatening. Yeah, he had two. He had that one after the Malevolence, and both of them have very 
like perfect Grievous esque names. Oh yeah, because like the Grievous malevolence is, is kind of the unknown evil, right? And yeah. at the time, I believe that that arc is the first time that in canon that Grievous acts as a main villain in Star Wars. And canon is, in fact, Malevolence, yes. Shadow of Malevolence is the episode, I believe. Yeah. I remember watching it on a TV in California. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. I was, I'm, I was in fourth grade when that episode first came out. Oh my I God. was in third or fourth. I remember um, Cad Bane. I'm going to talk about him for a second because he, he – I, I am sticking with a few people on Instagram. I think he might make an appearance. I think he's going to be in, jo- in Dave Filoni's episode, which is the next one. I think I think this next episode, given given how the trend of this one went, if they really want to surprise us, they're gonna have to pull out Cad Bane. Yeah, I'm hoping for Cad Bane and Boss. Cad his, Bane is the one that makes sense because it's a Dave, it's gonna be a Dave Filoni run episode, and Cad Bane was co-created by him, so it only makes sense. Right. But Boss would be the interesting one from a story standpoint oh, because yeah. of uh, Curse Ant Pan's. Hatred for the Trandosians, rightfully so. Rightfully as so. As seen in the Clone Wars, the Trandosians hunted Wookiees for sport. And then uh, Boba himself used to have Wookiee braids. I'm glad he ditched them because now he's working with Black Chrysantin. Is that yes. how you say his name? I've never Black had to Kersantin. say it out loud. Chrysantin. Yeah. That's how I've it's pronounced in the show. So. <laughs> uh, I actually haven't. I'm going to confess to you. I actually have only seen the first episode of Book of Boba Fett other than episode five. Oh, you need to change. I mean... Episode two is when the show, like, initially picked up. Uh, people have heard how conflicted I am about what they then do in episode three right after it. <laughs> is that the, the Power Rangers one? That is the Power Rangers one, but that's not what I'm conflicted about. I think the power, I think all the stuff in the present in Book of Boba Fett is good. The flashbacks are where I'm conflicted. Because the flashbacks in episode two are amazing. They're phenomenal without spoiling anything. Um, and the flashbacks in episode three are, uh, lazy <laughs> to, to put a word to it. <laughs> now I gotta watch the rest of it. Yeah, I, I especially would recommend watching at least episode two, because it's a phenomenal and one of, like, this episode is one of the best things that we've gotten out of Disney era Star Wars. The flashbacks are what I want to see. Yeah, part the flashbacks me- are really are are good for the most part. It's just that the decision they make in episode three with them felt very easy and lazy. You'll understand what I mean when you watch it. When I see it. Yeah. My main maybe from maybe it's just me, but I wish they would sort of do like one at a time. Like do all the flashbacks in a row, then give us all the present. That is kind of what they did do. Um because episode two is almost is mostly flashback and then Episode three is mostly present, and then episode four is half and half. And that, to my knowledge, that's the last episode with flashbacks. Because at the end of the flashbacks in that episode, um, Boba gets out of the back to tank fully healed. Boom. Boom, 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 boom. I miss his old theme from The Mandalorian. It, you're, you'll hear it more as we get closer to the present timeline. They're, they're, the whole thing with the, the Ludwig Goranson theme with the show is that it kind of gets hinted at, and then you hear it more and more prominently as the flashbacks get closer to the present. Oh, because that's Because it's cool. more of a theme for the present version of Boba than it is for his character as a whole. Right. 
So back to back to Pelly. There's a few more things I wanted to say about her workshop. Other than BD being very cool to see in live action. Yeah, uh, I uh, love Din thanking, like calling him the sweet boy, being so nice <laughs> to the BD unit. Character growth. Character growth. I yeah. love to see it. I also like to see. I knew I knew it was R5, but she never called him R5 until this episode. So that yes. was good to be like, okay, it is R5. Uh, there was that. She dated a Jawas. Yes, and they're apparently furry and canon. Oh, yes. Um, I know well, the that Jawas were um, rodent-like yes. in Legends in the EU. Um, but apparently they're furry now, so they're like Ewoks and coats. Well, the, um, the photo that I can't find that's probably been removed by Disney for good reason of the uh, like product photo or like behind-the-scenes photo of like what a Jawa is supposed to look like, they do look like rats. They look kind of like skeevers from Skyrim, if you've ever okay. played that. Uh, but it's sort of like compressed. Like their faces are still flat like a person, I suppose. But why? Why? Why would you date a Jawa? Because she can. I, that's, I can't imagine that's a good reason. <laughs> I don't like, know, maybe he was really good in certain areas. I can't imagine uh, Jawa's <laughs> performance without losing any rating uh, would be very good. Furthermore, I can't imagine a Jawa is particularly A, romantic, B, suave, or C, your best option even for Tatooine. Like yeah, she said, she'd true. never left the planet, I suppose, but like a Tusken Raider, man. Yeah. Uh, there's also a novelty the Pelly speaking Jawa ease. That was that the same was way funny. that like Din can speak Tuscan, not just with the sign language, but actually speak their language too. That was awesome. The sign language was probably one of my favorite parts of the Mandalorian on a whole. That was really, really cool to see. Yeah, it was also cool to see that the uh, into it. yeah the uh, the actor that plays the uh, um i completely forgot what they're called tuscan raider the actor that plays that tuscan raider is a very prominent uh american deaf actor so that was a nice touch you didn't have to get a deaf person to be to do the signing for your character but you did which is a nice touch yeah troy coatser that the developed the, the sign language for the first season of the mandalorian and i believe that he appears in the credits for either appears in the credits for the book of boba fett or has been acknowledged um, by the Star Wars social media team. So I'm glad that he's finally getting a lot of recognition from Star Wars and Lucasfilm themselves and not just journalism sites covering the creation of the sign language for the Mandalorian. So how long is he going to have this N1 Starfighter? Because as uh, cool as it is, it's not really a bounty hunter ship. He can't really store say like carbonite on it or well i mean like, you could just tie the carbonite to the bottom of the ship that's I mean, what the someone else said mine, they're frozen in carbonite is that what is that just the default automatic thought for this i <laughs> that's what i've seen people on twitter saying oh lord he's just gonna strap it to the roof that's gonna be so like a dog that's so funny like well, the roof dog. is curved so it'd be to the bottom of the ship oh since it can lord. since it can hover Grogu needs a seatbelt. <laughs> uh, he hits that button. The sublight thrusters send him uh, flying. Grogu is going to die yes. in that shit. Yes. Uh, I, love, I love the whole 
um, him being um, questioned by the the New York oh, that Police great. team. That's fantastic. He was doing donuts outside of his neighborhood and immediately got pulled over by the cops. They do not play on Tatooine. <laughs> they... Well, to be fair, he was moving faster than most spaceships normally move. <laughs> what they got him for, I thought, which I thought well, I was like, duh, is he flew right over that commercial ship. I'm pretty sure that's illegal even in real life. He yeah. flew like straight over it. And then the cops pulled him over, and he was like, oh, crap, the cops pulled me over. What did you think was going to happen? <laughs> what did you think well, was going to happen? moments of forgetting that the New Republic actually cares about Tatooine. <laughs> oh, that was so great. The cops around Tatooine, like, does that one guy just get around? The I think that guy? they have a set of cops that control all of the Outer Rim. Oh, that's fair. Navarro is in the Outer Rim. That's true. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And I believe Navarro isn't that far away from where Tatooine is, but I, I, I have to look at a star so. map in Star Wars to figure out. I haven't looked at one of those since I was a kid. Yeah, I haven't looked so. at one of those in a long time. I remembered basically where everything was, and then that's about it. Yeah. As far I know, as I know, they I know Geonosis is very close to Tatooine, but that's about it. <laughs> is he gonna get a new? Sh- is he gonna get a new ship? I don't think so. I think that this is just what we're going to operate with for now. This is a great ship. Does it have a name yet? Did they name it that we know of? Well, most of the ships in the Mandalorian Book of Boba Fett, the John Favreau-ridden shows, are named after their actual, like, ship, like, production name. Yeah, like, the like Razor, Razor Crest, Crest was a Razor Crest gunship. Yeah, or, he's like, not that the, the, He's or, really like, bad at naming the things, fire huh? Spray because it's a fire spray gunship. He's really bad at naming things. <laughs> good lord so um that's why like i i'm just for now calling it a nubian because i like the i like the name nubian and it's more fancy than calling it an n1 yeah the n1 is like that's like a formula racer the nubian sounds so cool yeah because that's the name of like all of the all of the naboo ships like all of padme's ships from the prequel trilogy were different types of nubian Royal like spaceships or like I'm just so glad I was just so glad to see anytime I see a little episode one callback I'm always a little happy like the pit droids that are always in Pelly's shop love those guys love those guys especially number two who's the smartest one according to this episode yeah it's neat seeing all the different generations of like Star Wars next to each other like you get like the the um, rebellion X wings next to an N one starfighter. Oh, that or you was see so like great. Uh, an R five next to a BD unit and the pod racer droid, the pod mechanic droid. It's all in the same shot with a treadwell. So <laughs> great with a treadwell and R five chilling out in the background. It's it's fantastic. Great. It's so we nice. are in such a golden age of Star Wars. Yeah, and and I touched on that a bit when we covered this in episode three because like. We joke about the Power Ranger speeders, but they feel directly from the from Coruscant, from Attack of the Clones. Oh, like yeah. that style of speeder, like just made it out the Tatooine after three decades. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a Cuban automobiles where they still have cars from like the sixties. Yeah, it's, it's there's a lot of really nice connective things. You can tell that uh, John Favreau was a huge fan of all Star Wars, not just the a small section of it. 
Oh, yeah. And he's really making all of us star- fans of all of Star Wars. Like, I, I, I am growing to love more and more Star Wars the more and more I see of the new Star Wars. And it's it's kind of I'm not I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna be that Star Wars fan and be like the prequels, but it's it's starting to really the comparison is night and day between new Star Wars. You get like the prequels versus like Book of Boba Fett episode five. Yes, but Absolutely. again, I'm not here to trash the prequels or yeah. the, the the um sequels. I always mix up those two words: the sequels, the Disney trilogy. Yes. Yeah, I would. I mean, I've spoken my piece about how much I love The Last Jedi and that I think it's one of the greatest things to come out of Star Wars. But I realize I, most of the people in my small circle in real life do not agree with me on this. I'm fine with that. Um, but yes, there are definitely... I have a lot of issues with The Force Awakens and The Rise of Skywalker specifically. Um, I haven't rewatched The Force Awakens a single time since I saw Episode Nine in theaters. Really? Yeah. That's the because one I've seen the most. It's it's hard for me to watch it knowing that J.J. Abrams, if Star Wars was given fully to him, we would have gotten two movies like The Rise of Skywalker. And I that I just it's hard for me to live with that. Yeah. <laughs> and I can tell, again, from Tross, that most of the ideas that I love from The Last Jedi were not things that J.J. ever thought would be things in Star Wars. And it's very clear that J.J. views Star Wars incredibly different from how, say, like Ryan Johnson or John Favreau or Dave Filoni view it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know that there's there's a lot of, like, thoughts that he really doesn't like the prequels because whenever they're mentioned in TFA, um, there's shade being thrown at the concepts introduced there. They're not even brought up a single time in The Rise of Skywalker, and he doesn't run with the idea that the Jedi were flawed at all. He views them as these unfaltering, unwavering, perfect heroes in Tross compared to the way that The Last Jedi viewed them, or the Clone Wars views them, where they're where they were deeply flawed in their views. Yeah. So it's... I think almost all of the issues with the sequels comes from you have a bunch of people that do not agree about the messages and theming and, um, and symbology of Star Wars. Rather just the progression of Star Wars, I would think. Yeah. Like, how do you, where do you go now that you have the Star Wars IP? I I'm glad the Mandalorian did eventually come out, but it took a long time for them to figure out what they really wanted to do with the Star Wars IP. But when they did, they're really hamming up with it. Like Book of Boba Fett is essentially Mandalorian too because he he was built up in the Mandalorian. Right. But it's so I'm just loving this show, man. I am loving I am loving this new era. Yeah, of I like it. Again, I like it overall. My issues come from. John Favreau has a certain set of tools in his arsenal, and he doesn't oh, yeah. really want to grow them any more than they already are. <laughs> he makes so, a lot of really easy, simple decisions when it comes to storytelling. He kind of sticks to the hero's journey as if it's like a, a guideline rather than like loose rules for him to follow. 
And that does bother me a little bit. Because whenever he introduces complex ideas in The Mandalorian or Book of Boba Fett, he usually doesn't know what to do with them after introducing them. No. And that's like my biggest problem. I, and I said this, I think, over the last two weeks of episodes as well. But he really just needs other people in the writing room with him. And I'm hoping that um, we might see a more significant change in the writing. Again, the writing for this episode was fantastic. Oh, well, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm wondering um, how different the writing will be next week, because I know that Dave Filoni co-wrote next week's episode. So I'm glad you touched on the writing. I actually wanted to say, uh, ending the progression of the episode, rather, as soon as he gets away from the cops, like we said a minute ago, he lands, Pelly asks him, how was it? He turns straight to the camera, straight to the audience, and says, wizard. Uh. That was amazing yeah i i laughed so hard i and laughed it's just, it's so such a good it's so hard. great you i can laughed, see the genuine enthusiasm with um that he's feeling in the moment with just one line i'm bringing it back it was uh for those of you who don't know it was actually a robot chicken skit years ago uh which is a super obscure reference to make in a star wars show to reference Robot Chicken Star Wars. That's a bold move. Yeah. Very hilarious. Though. It is. I know that Wizard is said by one of Annie's friends in The Phantom Menace as well. Is that where that joke came from to begin with? I believe so. That is so funny. When Darth Vader goes, how come nobody says Wizard anymore? How was it? Wizard. So he lands. He says Wizard. Best line. He had a lot of good one-liners this episode. Between uh, Paz Vizsla going, maybe the Dark Saber needs a new, needs a new master. Maybe. Hilarious. It's one single. It's not even a one-liner. It's one word. Maybe. Hilarious. Yeah. Well, later, has always been soft-spoken unless he's around Grogu. That's oh, like the yeah. only time where he was ever overtly vocal in the show. And he talked to Grogu a lot, too. I miss I miss Grogu, man. Is he coming back? Is he coming back or what? <laughs> well, I mean, you heard the final line in the in this episode. That is true. That is true. So after he says wizard, uh, Pelly is like, hey, some lady came over, Fennec Shand, and then Fennec jumps out. No Boba. Very weird. I would have expected him to at least like he's probably know, show busy. up in like a hollow cam. Yeah, he's probably yeah. busy. He's doing a lot of work right now. Uh, but She's like, come join us. And she hands him like a bag of money. And he says, you know what? This one's on the house. What a nice gesture. Yeah. Well, we, again, like Den is a very honorable person. So he realizes that Boba, while Boba was like honor bound to Den, the, like the rescue Grogu, he, I think Den recognizes that Boba kind of did way more than he should have. <laughs> so they're showing us, they're showing us what happened after, after, the Mandalorian season two to Boba Fett. But I want to know what he did immediately after. Because they showed up, they had a gunfight, they crashed the Imperial shuttle, and then Boba Fett was nowhere to be found at all. Like, he got out of there because he heard Luke Skywalker was coming. I'm certain of it. But <laughs> I don't, like, Honestly, I don't even know if Luke and Boba are on a first-name basis. <laughs> I don't think they're on a first-name basis. But I, I, I feel like that they, were, they, like they definitely know of each ship. other because of the comics and of Empire and Return of the Jedi. I don't think Boba... 
But I think Boba might still have the resentment for the Jedi. I, that could be something that um, could not be the Jedi a as a whole, later. but Luke Skywalker specifically. Like he he put it in there, you know. Yeah. And I think I don't think they're on a first name basis, but he does know his name at least. Like Han Solo has said his name around yes, him. Yes, yes. No, Boba definitely knows Luke's name because that was. Oh, Boba definitely knows. Yeah, because in the in the Star Wars comics, um, Boba was hired by Vader to find the the identity of the person that destroyed the first Death Star. Yes, which is how Vader first learns that um, his son is alive. Is Luke Skywalker? Yeah, he also was hired to find Star Killer, but I don't think that's canon anymore. No, no, no. Star Killer <laughs> is not canon. Mainly, I I think the main reason for that is because he's just too OP. He's too OP and too violent, I think. But I, I remember um, back when Mando season two was finishing, he was actually pretty high on my list of who I thought was going to come like as the final reveal. I knew in my heart of hearts it was going to be Luke Skywalker, but I remember being like, can you imagine how wild it would be if the door opens up and there's two lightsabers? <laughs> It was him and it was Mace Windu were the two that I was like, other than Luke Skywalker, it's going to be one of these guys. There was a part of me that was hoping to see Cal Kestis in live action. That would have been really cool. That would have been really cool. But now fun. that we've had BD, I mean, it wouldn't be too unrealistic to assume. Yeah, maybe at some point. Maybe after the second game comes out, because that could end. Yeah, he, uh, could, be, he could be at uh, Luke's Jedi school. Yeah, because I know we're getting a sequel to Fallen Order releasing later this year. Oh, or really? Next year. Yes, it was confirmed. I gotta play the first one. So, have you played the first one? I know. No, I have to. You I never should, had. You a... should. It is. If you have Amazon Prime right now, I just covered. I talked about this last week, too. If you have Twitch Prime or Amazon Prime right now, you can get Twitch Prime for free. And with Twitch Prime, you can get a free copy of Fallen Order right now. I think I have Twitch Prime. I'm actually going to do that after this call. Yeah, I believe that that is uh, a thing until the end of the month. See, I never played it because I never had um, a console really to do it. But since I moved my computer up here, that's on my list. I loved the old uh, any Star Wars game is fun. It's really you know what I was actually uh, you know what I was actually playing the other week Republic Commando. Yeah, I've I've been wanting to play Republic Commando, but I don't know where my copy of it is anymore. <laughs> I, I had, had it on the I, original Xbox. I had it on disc uh, back in the day in that box where you got like three Star Wars games. Right. Uh, but then I got it on Steam for like $2 back in the day. Like a few, like a year ago maybe. It's on Steam still. Right. Like cheap too. Yeah, I think the only one of the older Star Wars games that I've gone back and played is the second coder. Mainly in anticipation for the the remake that we're getting of the first one at some point. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about Still that. Still doesn't have a release date, but I imagine it'll be probably next year. So what what's coming next episode? Uh, I, what are your thoughts? It's Again, it's directed by Dave Filoni, so with that information, I'm willing to wager there will be a big character appearance, because in season one, it was the it was when Boba's entry into the Mandalorian was first foreshadowed because he's, of course, the one that found Fennec. Um, and then his episode in season two was the Ahsoka episode. That was so great. As, as we've mentioned already, it is very likely we'll see Cad Bane. Like, Cad Bane or uh, 
we still haven't heard anything about Thrawn since Ahsoka mentioning it. In yeah, Mando but two. we're getting a whole Ahsoka show. Oh, it's and I don't that, see that a don't good reason why Thrawn would appear in Boba. In Book of Boba. It would make perfect sense for him to appear in the Ahsoka show because we already have confirmation that Sabine is going to appear in it. Ooh. Um, so we have... <laughs> Wild to think that we're going to have a Mandalorian character in every in almost every live action Star Wars show. <laughs> yeah, right. Good. They finally are realizing. But Thrawn would make perfect sense to appear there because it, it at the end of Star Wars Rebels, he was whisked um through hyperspace somewhere random with Ezra to get him away from Withal. So I believe the plot for the Ahsoka show will be Ahsoka and Sabine looking for Ezra as established at the end of the final episode of Rebels. Oh, cool. I'm down. Um, yeah. Um, I know otherwise for Star Wars, we have two episodes of Book of Boba Fett left, and then I believe we have Only a long-needed break from Star Wars content until, I think, May, when Bad Batch Season 2 premieres. That's not a long break at all. It's, it's like a few months. It's, it's like, like three months. months. We have Moon Knight between that. We right? have Moon Knight. <laughs> so and then I believe next... that Kenobi is going to premiere while Bad Bat Season 2 is airing. So next week is the Dave Filoni episode. We're going to have a big character. Who are your bets? Top, top, top three. I mean, uh, if it's not Cad Bane, if I'm thinking Clone Wars like Dave Filoni characters, Embo would be great. <laughs> Mainly because he's voiced by Dave Filoni. <laughs> I would love to see a live-action Embo. Embo would be fantastic. I just don't know if he's still alive at this point. Just like we don't know if Cad Bane is still alive at this point. I feel like Cad Bane, if not I know that Zoro's live a very long time. I feel like he so. just would have been able to prolong his life because he has those rebreathers. Right. I don't know if they're permanent, but he has those rebreathers. Yeah, I don't think really what action, uh, Embo is, so I don't know how long... He's a Cuso. I don't know how long Cuso lived. I, I know, know Duro's lived for a very long time. A very long time. So like a, like, a, a, like, like a around the same. Cad they usually have a lifespan around the same as Wookiees. So, so we're going to have a very mature Cad Bane. Probably. I don't know how long he's been operating in Star Wars prior to Clone Wars. So, you know, that's a good point. We don't have like a, a set age for him like we do with like Chewbacca. How old is Chewbacca? Uh, let me look that up. As of the events of, say, let's say, like, Return of the Jedi. Yeah, in Solo Star Story, Chewie is confirmed to be 190. Oh, okay. And that takes place about a decade before the original Star Wars, or like eight, eight years, something like that. Um, so he'd be 198 in the original Star Wars. So he'd be like 203 in Return of the Jedi? I think. Dang. And I believe he's he's 234 in The Force Awakens. He's 234. Dang. Yeah. Dang. Dang. Does his uh does his kid Lumpy? know that how old is kid lumpy at this point i have no idea if the events of the christmas special are canon at i all. thought they get I'm... reference like there's things from it that get referenced a lot like the mythosaur 
that Boba that, Road or Life, or like Day. Life Day existing in canon. I don't know how much of it is canon. I know that Chewie canonically has a family because of um, the books, because of the, the second Aftermath book specifically. I'm gonna but keep I don't it know how much of the family is canon. I'm going to keep it 100 with you. When I saw Black Chrysanthemum, I thought he was going to be lumpy. <laughs> I thought beyond a shadow of a doubt, I was certain it was going to be lumpy. Very glad it wasn't. I mean, actually, that would have been kind of cool. Maybe. Probably not. <laughs> Probably well, not. of course, Santon has his own war in like, the comics and stuff. Because he right. was first introduced in the first issue of Darth Vader from 2014 as a bounty hunter hired by Vader. I don't remember what for. Um, because his... Oh, see, I did remember this because I saw a video on it. But I forgot it. It's gone. It flew out of my head. <laughs> but he's a very prominent character in the Vader comics and the Dr. Aphra comics right now. He's kind of like the de facto bounty hunter for the the Star Wars comics that take place during They're the really pulling timeline. A bunch of characters out. Yeah, there's again I think this whole show very much feels like a love letter to all of Star Wars. There's something from every corner of Star Wars that has appeared in every corner. Back, and that is wild. That's crazy to think about. Do you think as the um Sort of, I'm going to say the Mandalorian timeline, because that's, that's where it really started, seven years after yeah, the, the Return of the Jedi. Yeah, the timeline between um, Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Right. So, how far is it going to progress before we start getting the First Order stuff? I, like, I we know haven't heard anything else Order on The First started becoming prominent after the Battle of Jakku, which I believe was a year after Return of the Jedi. I don't think they became known until around the events of the Star Wars Resistance animated series, which takes place a bit before The Force Awakens. My point so being is... I would is, say like maybe a decade before at most. Do you think we're going to see, rather, the slow transition of Imperial tech and uniforms and I think we're already starting to see that. Um, I mean, you look at like Moff Gideon and his like sect of post-imperial um, stormtroopers and ships and et cetera. And they feel more advanced than what the Empire had already. Oh, yeah. So I feel like we're already starting to see that. I am loving, I am loving this sort of like post-Return post of the Jedi timeline. I'm really liking this sort of like defeated, grimy Star Wars era. Yeah, it's always been very interesting because it was it was a really interesting era of time when the books and comics covered it around the time the Force Awakens was first coming out. Because mm-hmm. like we had the we had the comic that um, followed Poe Dameron's mother after the events of Return of the Jedi um, that lasted like six issues, and we have the aftermath books and and Lost Stars, which is still I think my favorite new canon Star Wars book. Because it's just so amazing. So is Boba going to ride a Rancor? Yes. So between that and the Nubian, this is I'm I'm envisioning in my head like the final episode of Boba Fett. What it's really going to look like? It's going to be a battle of like his gang versus the Pikes. But I yes. can see a very like Avengers Endgame style like raw charge like sequence happening with Boba riding a Rancor with the Nubian flying in. Like, I can see this getting built up. 
I don't know if I'm particularly excited to see it. I know it's going to be cool, but I don't know if in the long run it's going to be the coolest. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you, speaking of the pikes, uh, there was this one throwaway line when Din asks the Jawas where they got um, they crimped it off the, the bar, the, the, the bar that we saw from the original Star Wars that Han uses to prop up the trash compactor. <laughs> oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah, that's what that is. Um, and I love the, mes- the mention that they, that they got it from a pike ship. That was another, uh, that actually, <laughs> that whole interaction was another great din line in this episode. When he, uh, he's talking with her and he says, you mean you just give them a list of parts and they can get it? And she goes, yeah. And he goes, can I ask them for parts? Just like all excitedly. And she goes, I don't see why not. Just all casually. That was hilarious. Yeah, because Din is very involved with the culture in Tatooine. Again, because he, he knows about the Tuscan culture and can, speak, and can speak and do sign language with them. So he's very like attuned to how Tatooine is. So him like realizing he can communicate with the Jawas is just another neat thing for him. That was this. This is great. Din Jaren is just the best character. Yeah, it's also something that would have come in very useful in season one. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! (laughs) I like all the um. I saw this meme once. This is going to be one of my closing thoughts. Saw this meme where someone was trying to explain the Book of Boba Fett, and they were like, basically, they took all of the DNA out of Boba Fett and gave it to a new character named Din Jaren. And then they have to make Boba Fett a new character. And then they had to make Boba Fett a new character, and they can't make him as cool as Din Djarin immediately, but they're gonna. Yeah, no, I, I, I talked about this when he was first introduced in The Mandalorian. I love Boba as this, like, seasoned, like, yeah. guy that has, very, has a, like, this very strict code of honor that has a more warm presence because of the things that have happened to him, and seeing what made him this more warm, more honor-bound um, warrior that we see in the Book of Boba Fett through the flashbacks is fantastic. You, I love, I, like, just a minor spoiler, because you haven't seen episode four, but in episode four, there is a line when he's speaking with Finnick, um, where Finnick says that his time with the Tuscans has made him soft, and he replies saying that the ti- now my time with them has made me strong. It's true. I'm really liking where Tamura Morrison is taking the character. Like that line that's in all the trailers, Jabba ruled with fear. I will rule with respect. Not at all what I expected to hear out of Boba Fett's mouth uh, ever. But it's a good take, turning this sort of like roguish villain into sort of a noble guy. Yeah, and you first, we finally first saw it in in the previous episode when he collects all the different um, gang leaders from across most Espa um, under one roof under the palace and he's talking with them and um, there's one moment where the Rancor starts getting upset underneath them because it's hungry and you can immediately see the look of everyone on the table immediately change They're like, as, as if that's the first time that he's really starting to command respect from them because Boba White does nonchalant like grabs a bit of meat from the table and tosses it down to the rancor. Bad. <laughs> Bad as heck. It's the best. No, yeah, that's, that's cold. Boba is cold. Above all else in this show, he is cold. He has got this sort of swagger that I never expected. Tamira Morrison is killing it. Yeah, he's fantastic. He might it's a very different performance than what we get um, with Din, 
with Pedro Pascal, but it just, there's something so nice about seeing Tamara and his, all of his crazy facial expressions when killing people in both oh, The Mandalorian so and Book of Boba Fett. He's such a great physical actor. It's fantastic. So, uh, closing thoughts. Um, I'm excited to see where this goes next week, but I have to do some catching up, it seems. i got to watch the rest of it. <laughs> At least definitely watch episode two because it's yeah, amazing. It's fantastic. That, that has been my biggest takeaway. Hearing you Seth, talk Seth about it. Seth Green directed the crap out of that episode. Did you say Seth Green? No, Steph Green. I was about to say the family guy guy. But I'm more interested to see where where Boba's going to go. His absence this week was noted, at least. It was good to see Din and have him get an episode, but it's not his show, you know? Absolutely. And that's that's kind of how I felt about initially. When I initially watched the episode, I was a little worried because we only had two episodes left, right? Yeah. We just spent a whole episode without Boba even Without in. Boba even there. But not progressing the plot narrative for him, even though there are, like, thematic touches, like, um, Boba having, like, finding his own found family in Book of Boba Fett, and then growing estranged from his still fits a lot of the theming and some, and, um, and symbol, and symbology that Book of Boba Fett has had so far. So this episode, episode still fits thematically with the rest, it just doesn't fit plot-wise, which definitely... While I love everything about there definitely is a part of me, it's like, this is kind of weird, and I still need them to do things with Boba's um, storyline and story progression after what oh, they yeah. did with episodes three and four. Because th- there was still a bunch left to be a little desired, and I need certain things to happen that I won't talk about, so I want to spoil it for you. <laughs> okay. I know most of the, most of the story points. But I'm still going to watch it. I want to know. It's Boba Fett for crying out loud. Yeah. Because I just need certain things. I, there are certain things I want to have happen. And there's a part of me that needs them to happen in order for me to be fully on board with the story they're telling. Because I was fully on board after episode two and then episode three happens. <laughs> I think I said this when we covered the episode on the podcast. It made it, it was a very similar feeling to how I felt about um, how Luke was handled at the end of season two of The Mandalorian, where it felt like it was the, the easy decision to make. The, like the kind of a bit of lazy writing. Maybe so. Maybe so. And, I, and there's things I need them to do with the Tuscans specifically to rectify the decision made in episode three. Now I want to know what happens in episode three. You'll know exactly what I mean when you watch it. <laughs> It is. Um, it was very polarizing for a lot of us that um, grew very attached to the Tuscans in Episode Two. I love the Tuscan Raiders. So something bad happens in Episode Three. Oh boy. Yeah. There's, oh boy. Yeah. What I want, without spoiling anything, what I want is for um, Boba to go around and collect the other tribes of Tuscans and like form them together over rulership of the dune sea to help him defeat the pikes so it would be the natives defeating the invaders it'd be a really nice 
kind of wrapping up of the Tuscan storyline as introduced at the beginning of the season. No, that would actually be a good ending. I've been listening to what you've been saying, knowing little-ish about uh, Book of Boba Fett so far. I'm liking what you're saying. I do hope <laughs> I that I know happens. my stuff, I guess, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to get there, man. I listen to What the Force every week, and I'm like, ah, there's so much more I could improve on. <laughs> and then I hear you praise me. I'm like, maybe I'm doing something right. <laughs> No, this is a good prediction. I'm excited because I all I know all I know now is that Boba's having trouble with the Pikes. He's gonna write a Rancor, and Din is gonna come help him out. Yeah, but we're gonna have like the collection. We have the collection of the companions. Like in episode four, he goes and gets Kersantan's help, and then right. in this one, he recruits Din. Um, so we're very much getting like the collection of the companions, which is a very common trope in most storytelling, especially in Western. Oh yeah, the especially when go around and collect the the allies that he's made along the way, and we saw that in both seasons of The Mandalorian as well. It's great though to see this sort of like central hero be Boba Fett. That's badass. All right. But no, I yeah, I really like the show. It's very rule of cool esque. It definitely is clear that this was John Favreau's passion project. This is this feels like the show that he initially wanted the pitch to Disney Lucasfilm. But they just weren't ready for it at the time. They weren't ready. They had to see the Mandalorian dollars first. Yeah. And especially after, like, how The Rise of Skywalker did, considering that it made considerably less than The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. And they saw the fan reaction to it, that both sides of the fan of the Star Wars fan, the fan reaction. both didn't like The Rise of Skywalker. So I, I think that that was a big wake-up call for uh, Disney Lucasfilm, even though we are still getting, like, connective tissue with the sequels, like we're getting a book about Luke and Lando's escapades prior to the sequel trilogy as spoken oh, cool. about in The Rise of Skywalker. So it's not like the movie didn't happen, but it's a part of me that wishes that they would just not do anything with it. But they have to because it's canon. With Rise of Skywalker? Yeah. Eh. Because eh. like, the events like we'll are forget. canon. And yes, were there some war-breaking things? Absolutely. <laughs> Um, I believe that The Rise of Skywalker is the only movie in Star Wars canon to actively break things that are established as equal in canon. Like what? Like we've had like the prequels um, or like the Force Awakens retcon things that were in like the expanded universe before. But I think The Rise of Skywalker was the first like Star Wars movie to retcon things that were considered like canon with the movies before it. Huh. <laughs> um, things like uh, I mean, the biggest thing is um, Poe's parents being retconned to be um, spice runners, whereas we knew because of the comics that were canon, releasing alongside The Force Awakens, that they were members of the Rebellion before um, Poe was born. And his dad served as a member of the New Republic police during the events of the Aftermath books. Huh. So that's one of those, like, that's, like, the biggest, that's, like, the biggest angering retcon, like, queer, like, canon retcon that The Rise of Skywalker has. There's a lot more subtle ones, like, the X-Wing shouldn't have been able to be piloted because the door, the cockpit for the X-Wing was used as the door for Luke's um, hut on Octo. Yeah. So it shouldn't be able to be piloted then? <laughs> or, like, 
it shouldn't be fully built and look the way it does in the rise of skywalker because that's a piece i realize it's only in the visual dictionary for the last jedi but even still yeah um and that's not even getting with like the thematic uh inconsistencies or symbolic inconsistencies <gasps> or there's a lot of problems with the rise of skywalker it's not just uh i don't like the decisions this movie made it's uh this damaged the continuity of star wars <laughs> so of course that will wrap up our, 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 our discussion sam do you have final closing remarks before we have to leave you and of course where can people find you as well if they want to hear your thoughts on star wars if you want to find me uh so far i only have instagram that's the only place where i really post and even then it's rare uh and that is d zero zero m i e two two and i'm just really excited i'm just really excited to talk about mandalore any chance i get this is something i've it's been sort of like a passion of mine my whole life so now that it's in the big the big public eye i have never felt better or smarter so just thank you for having me i love coming over to talk about mandalore yeah of course and hopefully we'll have you on again they cover maybe the next two episodes as well if you're willing oh yeah (laughs) and able (laughs) but yeah and then i mean we have so much star wars content coming out within the next year even outside of uh, the Mandalore stuff, and that's not even including Mandalorian season three, which is coming in December. Woohoo! I think, I think that's I when it's coming. I believe that they said it's winter of this year, so I would imagine that's December. See, I would watch a thousand seasons of the Mandalorian at this point. This episode has only proved to me that I, I am a shill for Disney, if only just for Din Djarin. <laughs> I mean, he's a really well-rounded and written character. He so, is he is the fantastic. best character Star Wars has churned out in a really long time. Yeah. He I would say it's him and Kanan from Star Wars Rebels that are probably my favorite characters that uh have been introduced while Disney has owned the franchise. <sighs> but no, I'm again like thank you for coming on, man. It's been awesome. Thank you for having me. I love to be here. I'll see you guys again uh the next time the next time I can. Once again, thank you, Sam Gilligan, for joining us to talk about the book of Boba Fett. But I have my normal co-host, Sean Clark, with me to talk about Violet Evergarden, because we watched the first two episodes of Violet Evergarden. Or rather, I rewatched them, because this anime originally came out in 2018, and ever since writing my article about this show, Sean has been begging to get me to show him it. And we figured that since JoJo's is currently on hiatus... And there isn't any other anime on right now that both of us are watching that we would go and revisit by whatever garden. Yeah, that I don't know what I was thinking because I'm already in emotional pain. But I can also at the same time see exactly why you love this anime because I feel like it was made for you. Like, yeah, it's it's so good. It's everything about it is just awesome. And it's funny when I think about Violet Evergarden because when I first watched the first like three-ish episodes of the show, I wasn't hooked because my taste in, in anime was still growing at the time when Violet Evergarden first came out in 2018. So I hadn't watched Slice of Life or a whole, whole lot of Slice of Life anime before this. Like I had seen Uruguay in April and Clanad, but I think that was about it because Fruits Basket hadn't come out yet, or at least the, the 2019 version. Um, and I didn't get into My Team at Comedy Snafu or Nozaki or any of the others that I've watched recently. So, and I hadn't 
seen a whole lot of anime with a character like Violet yet. So I didn't really get the show, you know? And I realized that when I rewatched, when I finally got into watching it, one of the biggest reasons why it stood out to me is that Violet is autistically coded as a character because she doesn't get people's emotions and doesn't understand meaning behind phrases, but she's very good at collecting knowledge of a very specific thing and immediately becoming really good at it. That is something that is an extremely autistic trait, as someone with autism knows, <laughs> like me. Um, and I don't know if that was intentional or not, but yeah, she's, it's definitely one of the reasons why I'm so attached to her character. And it's evident just from the first two episodes. Yeah, the, the, this show packs an emotional punch, to say the least. And one of the biggest reasons it does is because it's kind of a war movie in some ways, but it's not – sorry, a war show. I apologize. Yes. But, but, what's un, but what's unique about it is it doesn't take place during a war. It takes place in the aftermath. All, all Violet has known throughout her life was oh um time to follow an order like let's go fight but now she has to you know do something in the civilized world and that's not something she's used to on top of you know not really understanding emotion at all yeah her entire life she's been a tool to be used by others she's never really been a person before she's only ever known kind of being a weapon and the only person that ever showed her any other way of living before the present day was the major, uh, Major Guilford. He was the only one that ever showed her any compassion and treated her like an actual person. Um, and her being away from him, um, for reasons you can probably guess based off of the ending of the second episode, um, is definitely one of the reasons why she's so emotionally stunted right now. Because one of the last things that um, Gilbert said to her um, before um, she lost consciousness and woke up in the hospital at the beginning of episode one was that he loved her. Um, he specifically said, I love you. And Violet's story, at least for the first few episodes of the show, is trying to figure out why he would tell her that. She knows what the words mean, but she doesn't know why he said them. She doesn't understand human emotion at all because she's never, she didn't grow up being taught how to interact with people. She was only ever taught how to be the best weapon for warfare, how to be the best soldier, never how to be the best person she could be. And she's never known anything else. So you, because of that, you get moments like her trying to write the letter in episode in the second episode and it coming out like a robot wrote it um, because she doesn't understand human emotion or intent. Um, she just is repeating what the person said to her, but that's not what they meant when wanting to write the letter. And that's something that Violet just doesn't get because she's never felt emotion before. We saw in a flashback that she was delivered as a present uh, to the major, uh, essentially she she was found in a battlefield again, which is all she's known. So for 
so for her, you know, the only emotions that she really was exposed around was the adrenaline of war. That's like interacting with people, uh, knowing social cues, all that was never something that she ever was around. Yeah. And it's important that I don't think she even really registered what the adrenaline of, of the war was again. Um, Violet being artistic coded leads to um, her lack of, um, of knowledge on emotion and the fact that she doesn't really know how to feel anything. I doubt that she got anything out of the war other than just doing what she was told. Like, she doesn't even really have PTSD from it because she didn't feel any emotions for anyone while there outside of the major. Um, and that's probably part of the reason why his fate is being kept a secret from her over fear of what it would do. Because it seems like he's dead. That's definitely what um, Claudia thinks, yes. And if that is the case, that might mentally break Violet. Yeah, because at this point, Gilbert's the only person that's ever shown her any compassion ever. Like, at least he, he's kind of this, he's, he's the only friend that she's ever had. And she's only 14 at the beginning of the show, and the war lasted five years. So she was only nine years old when she first started being trained as a soldier. At least presumably, um, presuming she was trained right when the war was, start, was beginning, right? So yes. she's never known anything else. And he's the only person that's kind of given her a glimpse at humanity. I mean, you can, you can see how much she cares about him through, the way, through how worried she was about not having the brooch that he gave her. The, the green brooch that happens to match her eye color perfectly. Yeah, and when, when she was able uh, to get that... Uh, or, or sorry, his eye color perfectly, not hers. <laughs> Gilbert's yeah. eyes are green, violets are blue. <laughs> yeah, when 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 Hodgins essentially gives her gives her that, you know, she holds on to it so tightly because it's like the one thing that she really has as a connection with them, or just one thing that she is emotionally attached to. That's why she she wanted it so desperately and held it as tightly as anything ever uh, when when Claudia actually gave it to him. Yeah, absolutely. Or, sorry. Um, and it's really interesting seeing how different people interact around Violet. And you can see in episode two how a lot of, or we, we meet the other three um, auto memory dolls that are working at the postal um, company and each of their reactions and interactions with Violet give you both a good lens into their character as well as how emotionally detached Violet is from the rest from everyone else you have um Kat Katloya who is the most professional the most famous one working there who sees potential in Violet but I don't think that she really gets what type of person Violet is because I think it seems like Katlaya has always worked incredibly hard to achieve the status that she has. And she doesn't really, she can't really connect with someone that is coming from a different background. And, 
And to an even greater extent, that's the case with um, Shirami Wei's character, Iris, um, who thinks very little of Violet and just sees her as an obstacle for her to overcome, um, something that we'll definitely see more of in later episodes. One uh, part of these episodes that was that that was especially was was Erica and Violet's uh, interactions. Uh, Erica was training Violet on how to be an auto memory doll, but you know, obviously things went wrong with you know the robotic sounding voice of of Violet, mm-hmm. and while Iris was discussing with Claudia that that Violet should be let go. Erica stepped in and defended her. Yeah, Erica feels a kinship with Violet because while she definitely doesn't feel the same way that Violet does with Violet not really understanding other people's emotions, Erica has this deep-rooted insecurity of thinking that she doesn't deserve to be where she is and that she isn't doing as good of a job as she could be. So when Violet defended her in front of a client, she immediately, she had never had anyone stand up for her that way before. And she had never seen anyone else treat her own work with with reverie at all, with reverence. And because of that, Erica then would naturally stand up for Violet and respond. And their conversation outside before that moment as well is really intriguing because you see Erica basically telling Violet all the things that she believes about herself, trying to, because in, in the moment, and it's an, an initial gut, um, gut reaction from a lot of the people, you immediately want to place blame on something else. That's someone else's fault that you are feeling inadequate. And I think it's really powerful that Erica goes from having those feelings of wanting to place blame on someone else to realizing her that um, why she's putting Violet down is because of her own insecurities and her immediately countering that with standing up for Violet in the following scene is it, it's an it's a fantastic character moment it tells you everything you need to know about Erica's character from the span of two scenes it does that was that was really strong I really enjoyed it that was one of the first ones that made me realize okay this is already this is already some very high quality content that we're getting here um but i would say i would personally say that my favorite uh part so far has been honestly like already i would say it's benedict who is a who who is the postman that works for claudia very eccentric and he's kind of bewildered by uh bewildered by violet he's he kind of has that audience perspective in a way like yeah benedict benedict likes the role that he's in he's not trying to be anything overtly exceptional he's not trying to do anything um greater than what he thinks he's able to he he's found this place as the delivery man for um for the company and he's comfortable where he is. So when he sees Violet working so hard to fill to fit a role that she doesn't look like she's up to the task for, he's confused because he doesn't get it. He he thinks that 
it's very clear that he has the worldview that people are made for very specific things, for very specific roles. And he thinks that he was destined, that he that being a postman is all he could ever be, just like um, how it's very clear that um, someone like Catalea was meant, was born to be an auto memory adult, probably from his perspective. Um, so when he sees Violet working so hard for a job that she doesn't seem ready for, it, 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 it seemingly causes conflict for him because he's never seen anyone work so hard for something that um, might be impossible for them before. That is true. And at the same time, you also see Bendix complaining about people not finding his own work as, um, as hard as others, right? Like the, the two receptionists completely blowing him off because he smells like sweat and looks like um, he hasn't showered because he's been working all day. Because he's out and about delivering, and that takes a lot of effort. I mean, the only times we ever, whenever we see him getting done from work, he always has this dirty look to him as if he's been busy the whole day. So you can clearly see that he takes pride in what he does, even if um, compared to the work that Erica or Katlaya or a or Violet is doing isn't quite as exceptional. Remember, ladies, remember, 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 gentlemen, you can work as hard as possible, but that hygiene is everything, man. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. I mean, you also have to remember when um, this show presumably takes place, because I believe it's supposed to be near the end of the 19th century, if I remember correctly. That is also true, but even still. But I, these first two episodes are definitely do their job. You get the worldview, you see the type of people that the post office deals with and how everyone reacts to Violet and how she interacts with the world. At this point in the story, Violet's a pretty passive protagonist, which usually, and I imagine that's part of the reason why I had such a hard time getting invested in it initially is that she doesn't really play that big of an active role. I mean, she wants to be an auto memory doll, but she's only working at the post service because of Claudia taking her in. Um, she wants to become an auto memory doll in order to understand other people's emotions, but the jobs that she's given are given to her by other people. She's not making a whole lot of her own decisions. She's not as active of a protagonist compared to a lot of other anime that we've seen. And I think that's part of the reason, again, that's part of the reason why I had such a hard time immediately um, getting where the show was going with her character. I think the next episode is the one that changed that for me. I'm excited to see her grow. I'm excited to, you know, have a more active uh, role at, as a protagonist. I'm excited to see the relationships around her continue to grow. Uh, excited to learn more about her past and about this general that she keeps talking about all the time. And I'm there's just a lot to look forward to. I thought they established a really good foundation, and I'm exce- I'm excited to see how this show is going to break me. Yeah, because as you tweeted, rewatching this show for the podcast, uh, please pray for the pain that I'm about to feel once again. Yeah, this is uh, I don't think I've ever cried. I this and and Fruits Basket I think have the award for shows I've cried the most watching. Because, yeah, this is, you'll, you'll know what I mean when we get to it. Uh, it'll take 
actually knowing you you might start getting weepy by the end of next episode but i didn't start like really hard crying until near the end of violet's arc which i believe is in episodes seven eight and nine if i remember i'm scared yeah um violet regard is a really interesting show because it i mean like it has um your typical serialized plot but a lot of the episodes are very episodic well they'll you'll have Violet going around and meeting um, a, these new characters that you only get for maybe one or two episodes um, working with her working jobs in various places. But you'll also have like multiple episode arcs. Like I think that the first two episodes of the show are kind of built on, a, on each other because it's Violet being thrust into this world that she's never been in. Um, and a lot of fiction talks about a lot of like the hero's journey has like the hero in their starting out in their ordinary world and getting thrown and thrust into the special one and you know usually in fantasy it's the the special world like in star wars for luke um the ordinary world for him is is the Wars homestead farm and the extraordinary is everything outside of that or War of the Rings, where you have the ordinary world be the Shire, and then the special world be everything outside of the Shire, the rest of Middle-earth. For Violet, Violet Evergarden takes an interesting stance on this, because the ordinary world, like what we would consider normal, is the special world for Violet, the world that she knows nothing about and doesn't know how to operate within. And the normal world was the world of the war, the world that would normally be the special world in any other story. Yeah, that's a that's a crazy uh, tw- uh, twist on it. And obviously, you know, I talked about this earlier, but having a war sh- show that takes place that 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 deals with the after aftermath, you know, you have a you have a soldier who. That's all she knew going into civilized life. That's difficult. And I think in in real society, that's a real issue that many veterans deal with. And this show kind of deals with that, but it, it deals in with a more it roundabout way. In a more because, roundabout way. Yeah, because Violet doesn't really understand yet how things will be different. Like Claudia is telling her that your insides are going to be burning up one day thinking about what you did during the war. Because she doesn't really understand what she did or the ramifications of it. She doesn't get that she hurt people or that she killed anyone. And she doesn't, she doesn't really get what that will do to her over time. Because she doesn't understand the ramifications of it. She assumes that these feelings um, are... Uh, this ordinary for her and she doesn't understand what Claudia is talking about at all but you can see from Claudia's face and the way that he moves that the war affected him um in more of the conventional way that we see with a lot of veterans while Violet it is inevitable that that will happen to her but she's oblivious and I think that there's a part of Claudia that is jealous of how oblivious she is to the effect the war had on her Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to get more of his perspective to why he feels the way he does and just who he is. I feel like 
there's a, there's a lot of good stuff to him that we haven't explored yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Claudio's an interesting character because like um, Gilbert, he's trying to do everything he can for Violet. And as mentioned in episode, I think it was episode two, um, most of his actions towards Violet are him trying to redeem himself for the lack of empathy he showed um, for her um, during the war when she first came under Gilbert's care. So it's going to be interesting to see how he deals with that because it's his his relationship with Violet currently in the show is more him trying to find redemption for himself rather than him altruistically trying to help Violet. And it's going to be interesting to see how that relationship changes over the course of the story. Well, he he did give up a whole month's worth of salary to find her emblem. Mm-hmm. Her brooch, yes. So you can already start to see how Violet, how his um, how him taking Violet under his wing is changing him as a person. It's more so that he's, he's forcing the change by committing all of these actions, by being helpful, by trying to, to do what's in Violet's best interest. But at the end of the day, his key motivator for this was trying to be the, a better person than the one that he was during the war. And I feel like that is a common theme that we might see for more, more than just him, considering that we were also introduced to Gilbert's brother in the second character as well, who's voiced by Keith Silverstein. Yeah, I'm intrigued to, to get more from him as well. Yeah, Deep Freed is interesting, because he, you have to remember that um, Gilbert specifically took Violet under his wing because he saw how unique she was and how she was trained just to be a soldier and wanted more for her and was and hoped that being under his wing could turn her into more than just the weapon that she was made to be typically with a brother relationship in storytelling the brother will be the opposite the the brothers will be opposites or have different worldviews so from that you can kind of guess the way that Deep Freed views um, Violet compared to Gilbert. Yeah, yeah. Don't got a, don't got the best of feelings about their their dynamic. Mm-hmm. But the next episode will foresee Violet being trained to be an auto memory doll, like actually going to a class and being taught. Um, how do you think that is will play out? I think it's going to be a very uh, frustrating time. I think she's going to constantly ask. She's going to constantly say, I don't understand or uh, she's going to be very confused by a lot of things. And I think, you know, the trainers are going to be very bewildered by her. And I think it's going to be a very slow and painful growth. But I think it could have at least some marginal payoff at the end of the third episode. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And I think the one thing that we haven't talked about is Erica Harwatcher's performance as Violet. Um, I know that for those that have listened to us before, um, Erica Harwatcher is also the voice of Shinobu um, from Demon Slayer, as well as a few other things. I know that she voices, she's most well known for voicing um, Anne, one of the female leads of Persona 5, um, as well as a, a variety of other characters. But I know that Violet, for me, is probably my favorite role that she's ever had. 
I mean, considering how much you love this show, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but no, she was she was fantastic. She did a great job uh, portraying a real, you know, stoic kind of robotic voice in a way. But also the couple times where, um, where she, where she wanted that broche or she wanted to, or she was confused by what I love you mean. She really did a great job displaying the urgency and emotion in her voices that way. Like th- there's a lot of great range here when you have to play, you know, as you would love to say, the emotionless character who discovers emotion, you have to have a lot of emotional range to do that. Obviously Kira Buckland is, is great as that. And Erica Harlotcher is great as Violet so far with this exact role. Yeah. Um, Erica also is the voice of Proust Karsten in ReZero. Well, you could have started with that. That is yeah. amazing. That one took me a while to remember. She just wasn't in season two that much. What can I say? Pain. <laughs> Absolute pain. Um, but no, I... Yes, I really love the show. And yet, and as we get further into it, uh, you and as well as anyone listening to us will start to understand why. It's, it's just one of the best anime ever made. And that's without talk. We haven't really even di- didn't, like dove into the animation quality from Kyoto Animation here either. Because this is by the same studio that did the silent voice. And it's probably one of the best non-action-oriented like, anime I've ever seen. Okay. Not that there isn't any action, because we still have some of the military flashbacks. But when I think of the animation for the show, I don't think of the military or any of the warfare stuff that we see with Violet. I think more of the, the small things like the way her hair blows when the wind moves past it, or, um, or the small creases in paper. Or like in episode one, you see her writing the weather to Gilbert, and then it gets blown out of the window, and all like... The detail of the weather while it's flowing through the air is just exceptional. And that's not a level of quality you usually get with shows that aren't, you know, sh- your typical shonen action fair. Yeah, the level of detail for the animation is beautiful. It always, I could always clearly get the details of everything. It was, everything was just so vivid. Like, that's like the work that best describes animation. So vivid, so beautiful. It does a great job portraying expression. It does a great job just just showing the scenery and even the military stuff. You know, it, there was just so much rapid fire stuff, but all of that was clearly seen. I thought it was fantastic. And you mentioned the letter being blown away. I I pointed out while watching that the letter uh, being blown around, and you're able to see how Chris, uh, you're following it, reminded me of the Polar Express where where the ticket was blown out of the train, and got back into the train by some insane luck. And it, it just reminded me of that. And the fact that I'm comparing it to Polar Express, which is a incredibly amazing animated movie, that, that's a very high compliment. Yeah. And the amazing score by Evan Call only adds to all of that. The music for Violet Evergarden is so good. It's, it's this very kind of solemn type of theme that both feels energetic and melancholic at the same time. It fits Violet's personality and character extremely well. Absolutely. 
But any any final thoughts before we close out the podcast, Sean? Just uh, just wondering when I'm going to start to cry. This show's about to make me cry. <laughs> well, that'll do it for this week's episode of Nerd Explosion. Sean, what do you have coming up on the podcast or on the website? <laughs> Excuse me. Well, I actually uh, had a really busy week. I was in uh, Phoenix for NASCAR Next Gen testing, and I actually was able to come away with a story from that, talking about how the new car uh, shrinks the gap from the top teams to the lesser to the other teams. So be sure to check that out. Uh, my profile, Marcellus Erlington, a player from the University of San Diego, is also out, as well as a opinion piece about NFL overtime rules because people cannot stop complaining about overtime rules, and I had to settle the debate once and for all. So that will be coming out the day after record, which will come out on a Friday. So pro- so this podcast will probably be out by then. And then also, I've, I, had, I finally had the time this week to uh, write my review of Super Mario Odyssey. Uh, as I said a few Nerd Explosion episodes ago, I enjoyed it. I, you know, like, you know, like I've said, I didn't think that the – that the game stru- the gameplay structure was great where you fight boss battles and you still had tedious like th- like things to get before you advance to the next world. I just didn't like that structure. But I thought it was overall a fun game though. There were some really strong aspects to it. So I did write a review of that uh re- you know reviewed obviously edited by yourself and yes, com- I edited that. It was pretty good. It was pretty solid. I appreciate that. Um, and coming up, uh, the main thing is I get to preview the uh, NFL Conference Championship weekend. Uh, in three days, we will know who will, will play in Super Bowl 56 in Los Angeles. I am very excited to check out the Conference Championship weekend after what was the most insane football weekend I've ever seen last weekend. So that's the main thing I have coming up, which is those conference championship previews. Yes, absolutely. Um, of course, for me, most of my article stuff is the same as the last time I talked about it, but I had the chance to watch the final episode of, oh my God, this title is a mouthful. Let me pull up the full thing so I can say all of it. Uh, banished from the Heroes Party, I decided to live a quiet life. In the countryside, <laughs> um, which is a new fantasy anime that premiered in um, fall of last year of 2021, that has is basically about what the title is. It's about um, the brother of the hero of the fantasy land, you know, the one destined to destroy or defeat the demon lord, who has been banished from the hero's party by one of its members, and has decided to. Make, like build a pharmaceutical company in a small town and try to get away from all of his heroing escapades. And in the process, finds love and purpose aside from killing um, evil monsters. <laughs> it's a surprisingly cute show that, like um, The Misfit of Demon King Academy the year before, I expected to be very simple and straightforward and ended up doing a lot more than I expected it to do. Um, 
his sister especially is probably one of the most interesting storylines I've seen in the fantasy series where she's coming to terms with how being born as someone destined to be the hero of legend has affected her upbringing and realizing that all she wants is a normal life alongside her brother. Interesting. It is surprisingly good, and if you're a sucker for fantasy romance anime, this might be the one for you. Uh, Hopefully I'll have a review out for it within the next week, because it was fantastic. But that'll, of course, as as I said before, that'll do it for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you all for listening, and have a fantastic rest of your day.